Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, as we, uh, we open our Bibles now, uh, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and uh, Paul's going to get, get a little serious here going forward now. He's spent, uh, spent a good uh, a bit of time, as we've observed, just reassuring them of his love for Thessalonica, those Christians there, God's love that is extended towards them, the evidence of love that is in their behavior and their works. And that is, that's the transition now that Paul is turning to is not only have you proven yourselves, but, but now this is, this is a life that is to be consecrated, set apart to the Lord Jesus in honor and service to him. I've titled this message, uh, God's Holiness Demands Our Holiness. And holiness is one of God's attributes that doesn't get as much uh, applause or emphasis these days. We do quickly embrace how God is loving, He's, he's merciful, He is eternal, um, He's unchanging, um, Holiness is not as often spoken about. It doesn't receive as much attention. But approaching the end of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul begins to turn the reader's attention to God's holiness. Because God's holiness demands our holiness. Three times in Leviticus, God says, you shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And all three times that statement is sandwiched in Leviticus uh, with the context of God's demand of righteous behavior, godly living. Uh, some might say, yeah, that, that's the Old Testament. That is true. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14... The Apostle Peter writes this in the context, again, of righteous human behavior. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, then he cites Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. Hmm. Well, I guess it's not possible to unhitch holiness from the New Testament. According to the Apostle Peter, the notion that our conduct doesn't really matter un under the New Covenant, that, that just doesn't fly, folks. It just doesn't fly. Uh, and in fact, we learned in the adult Bible class this morning uh, that Old Testament believers were saved by God's grace and through faith, uh, just like we are today. Uh, therefore, God's grace doesn't excuse immoral behavior, as we will, sh we will see next week 
in chapter 4. Folks, understanding this is extremely important. Uh, some of us grew up you know, being told that Jesus died for our sins uh, so that we could, could basically live in whatever way we want. He took care of it. Now just follow your fleshly desires. Fr friends, that is not truthful because it's just not scripturally accurate. That's reinventing Jesus. Neither is it accurate that we must earn merit or in order to enter heaven through our good behavior. It's like going to church and doing other righteous works. Uh, we don't earn our way into heaven by striving to make our good deeds outnumber or, our, or outweigh our bad deeds. It's not a balance scale we're measured on. Uh, that would be referred to as works righteousness. That too is error. Uh, by which no man can be saved, because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not as a result of our works. Still, being born again, being renewed by the Holy Spirit, we are new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Boy, isn't it, isn't it wonderful to have in your heart a desire for holiness? I think many would say, well, I remember my life when I was an unbeliever. That, that desire just wasn't there. The desire to honor God just, just wasn't there. And to, to now experience that, that love of holiness and having previously loved sin, adored sin... Now we love holiness. We love righteousness. Having previously been enslaved by sin and its various lusts, uh, through faith, now we have become slaves of Christ. Even if we stumble now and then, we long to honor uh, the wonderful goodness that Christ has given us. And Paul, as I said, now leads us into that discussion of holiness, or that is our moral behavior that is set apart to God made holy uh, as an expression of our love and worship for God. And from what we learned last week in verse 8, holiness has become an integral part, an inseparable part of our standing firm in the Lord. In verse 10, Paul concluded our discussion last week by stating, you know, I want to complete a few things that are still lacking in your understanding. And now he begins in verse 11 with our lack of holiness. We, we just have a lack of holiness. And, and next week in chapter 4, he will develop that discussion of purity further. Well, you don't want to miss our discussion next week. Chapter, yeah, yeah, that's for real. First eight verses of chapter 4. But before Paul begins there, uh, for today we're going to be reminded... We're going to be reminded that uh, there is going to come a day when we will stand before our God and Father. And, and Paul here says, he, he implies, my mission, my passion of my work, my preaching ministry is to prepare you for that day. 
I want to prepare you for that day. So he first promotes the subject matter of that day uh, to get a hold of our attention. Uh, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7, it states that all who belong to him, meaning all who belong to Christ, are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, when that day arrives, what a day that will be. When my Jesus, I shall see. Boy, we who are in Christ will be confirmed in holiness, blameless when he returns. And holiness offers well, just one more reason why we are so anxious awaiting, awaiting Christ's return. You know, the last prayer of the Bible is, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. So you don't need to feel guilty about wanting Jesus to come. Sure, while we're here, we want to use our lives as a vessel to, to draw others to forgiveness. I heard a, heard a comment uh, by Alistair Begg recently where he said uh, he was talking about a study of a businessman who had been very, very uh, successful in business and uh, a, a business was seeking out this man to lead another company, and they sent out a headhunter in order to interview him. And uh, the question was asked, after, after the headhunter had disarmed him on everything, he hit him with this question, and he said, what is your purpose in life? Without hesitation, the man said, uh, my purpose is to go to heaven and take as many people as I can with me. Isn't that wonderful? So with the, the, the image of Christ returning, the Apostle Paul knows that he's going to pique our interest here. Speaking about Christ's return. The interest of the Thessalonians, they've, they've already proven they are standing firm in the Lord. They're looking forward to his return. That's something that unbelievers don't get to share in. The blessed hope. They, they don't get real excited about this discussion. But the Apostle Paul does. And he tells the Thessalonians now to stand firm. And through verses 11 through 13 says this. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all the people. Just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 16, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus did imply there that he is the Father but that the Son's divine essence is identical to that of the Father. He is holy. And therefore, the, the Father and the Son always act in perfect harmony with one another. So Paul prays to both together in unity. Grammatically here, Father and Son are offered as two different subjects, but his prayer is used 
is using one singular verb, speaking to the two as one, asking that God would direct him. Boy, would we ask that in 2022. The Lord, will you direct our paths? And the Father and Son are distinct from one another, but Paul asks them together, may he direct our path straight to you? The verb there means a, a straight path, a direct path. Uh, so Paul said last week in verse 10, uh, they, he and Silas and Timothy had been praying earnestly that they could find a way to get back to the church in Thessalonica uh, so that they could strengthen them and confirm them and uh, provide them with that which they are lacking. And this letter provides... I, I, I'm calling it an initial phase, all right? An initial phase of helping them to be made complete. He wants to be in their presence to finish that out. But this letter now in the end of chapter 3 begins this initial phase of helping them to be made complete. And the apostle sees this task as urgent. It's urgent, uh, folks, because time is ticking. Time is ticking. You realize that you have a limited amount of time, right? If you were with us studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, you came to a very clear understanding of that. There's a limited amount of time, uh, ticks on the clock, ticks in your heart. And limited time until what you might ask, and the answer is in this passage, there's a limited amount of time before Christ returns. He's coming, and he's coming quickly. And your personal window, your personal window, your opportunity for being conformed into the image of Christ, to prepare for his return, that window is going to close shortly. You're going to expire. And there surely were some young adults upon whom... Jesus described as that tower of Siloam falling. They probably thought they had a lot of time remaining. Then they heard a crack. And then they looked up. And the tower came crumbling down. They didn't have any time left to finish. And if you belong to Christ, God has a specific plan for your life. Do you know what God's will is for your life? People ask us all the time, oh, what is the will of, what is God's will for my life? Um, I was going to let, I was going to wait till next week to let that cat out of the bag. Right? But I'm not sure you have that much time left. And because you probably can't handle the suspense anyhow, what is the will of God for you as revealed in chapter 4 and verse 3, Jeff Rogan? Your sanctification. your sanctification. God's will for your life is sanctification. God's will is that you will be set apart and conformed to God's holiness in Christ. That's his will. 
Romans 8, verse 29, in fact, assures, listen to this, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God predestined that we be conformed. So here's, here's the critical question that we all have to answer. Um, when does our conforming to the image of Christ occur? Does our conforming, which, which God has predestined, does it occur on that day that Christ returns? When he comes in his glory and, and, and we're glorified and every remaining element of sin is finally removed so we can live in the presence of God. Does, does our conforming, which God predestined, occur on that day? Or does this describe our conforming to the image in preparation for Christ's return? Is it a later date or is it today in preparation for Christ? Well, fortunately, during our scripture reading earlier, you might not have caught it, uh, but we read how it is God's will to work in you. It's his will to work in you for his good pleasure. And in Philippians chapter two, uh, chapter 2, Paul writes this, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, present tense, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Catch that? Oh, so this all happens now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So our conforming to the image of Christ, that process of sanctification, uh, it occurs in preparation for his coming. Well, don't worry. Jesus didn't leave us as orphans. He left us another comforter or a helper, he is called in John, uh, the Gospel of John, the, the Holy Spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit who permanently indwells and seals all true believers. And it is therefore God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this describes a work that God is doing in you presently. That sounds suspiciously familiar to our verse 12, where Paul says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we do also for you. Why? So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. We need to understand the, the, the gravity, the importance of these implications. Since we are being conformed to the image of Christ now, 
so that we can be confirmed blameless in that day Christ returns, then is it possible for us to live in whatever way we want just because Jesus died for sins? No. God dwells in us. He dwells in us. Therefore, our dwelling in whatever sinful condition that we would like would propose that God is not actually at work in us. Now, does this imply that we, that we earn salvation through good behavior? No, no, not at all, not at all. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 assures us, by grace we are saved through faith not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's almost like he predestined it, isn't it? And therefore, as I, as I stated recently, you do not earn forgiveness through good deeds. Uh, the Apostle Paul asserted that his best deed on his best day was, was but filthy dung before the Lord, a righteous and holy God. And Isaiah the prophet, he declared in Isaiah 64 and verse 6, this is while including himself, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That's what Isaiah said. Well, so quit thinking so highly about yourself for just a minute. We are forgiven by a free act of God's grace. He's given you grace. He's shown grace. Uh, but there's nothing, nothing about you that God finds particularly attractive. All right? We look in the morning and we think we're looking good and doing the hair up and flossing and all the stuff you're supposed to do. Um, we don't really look that good, do we? But nonetheless, God has saved us for his purposes. And he desires that after we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, after we are saved, then he's going to achieve some great things through us. Isn't that wonderful? He has a purpose for us, our sanctification, that he would be glorified through uh, the works that he's prepared for us beforehand. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. And when properly understood, this answers the complaint, uh, the complaint that uh, many Arminians will assert against Reformed Calvinists, all right? Arminians like, uh, in the tradition like John Wesley, uh, have it's just inaccurately claimed that the sovereignty position of John Calvin, uh, that that position implies that if you are truly elect uh, and predestined from the foundation of the world, then Christians can live in whatever way that they want. But that isn't even remotely true. John Calvin never wrote anything remotely like that. Um, those who embrace a a biblical understanding, one that reflects Bible uh, faithfully, 
uh, of God's sovereignty, which includes men like John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and, and uh, George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon, we realize that a Christian absolutely cannot live in unbridled passion and sinful rebellion because God's at work in you. He, he's at work in you. And he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, which is righteousness. And, he, and he's decided to do so in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Can you believe that? For that reason, licentious rebellion against God uh, that persists unrestrained and without conviction it indicates that at least thus far, at least to this point in your life, uh, you have not experienced the saving grace of God. Because in verse 12, the Lord causes the increase, not a decrease. And the love of God that is supplied overflows, and we're told it abounds in love displayed toward one another. And it is He, the Lord Jesus, who establishes our hearts without blame and holiness. It's a work that God does. And we're going to observe next Sunday that uh, the Apostle Paul is not anticipating a moral lapse in Thessalonica. And read ahead if you dare. But he's expecting an increase in chapter 4. Excel even more, he says, Remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original text. Paul isn't changing topics. He's developing his same argument which he in, in which he urges all the believers in Thessalonica, excel even more. Because the will of God is your sanctification. And he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son. Philippians 2 and verse 13 for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and among whom you appear as lights in the world. Folks, do you... The reason that the church in America has become so ineffective and so impotent, it's because in contradiction to God's word, it's falsely taught generation after generation that you can belong to Christ and still indefinitely go on living your life in whatever way you want. That is not accurate. It's not true. That is, folks, that is not Christianity. We think about what that notion, that idea is doing to our children and to our grandchildren. God's holiness demands our holiness. Does such a declaration, let a little pressure out of the balloon here, does such a declaration expect that Christians will achieve sinless perfection in this life? Boy, I hope not. 
No, it expects for all Christians that God's at work in you. And that he is causing you and me to increase, verse 12, and that he is establishing our hearts without blame and holiness, verse 13, in preparation for the day that we're going to soon meet him. One way or another, whether he comes in the clouds or we go another way, we will soon meet him. And I was going to, at this point, uh, give a little review or an overview of Isaiah, uh, his experience that that prophet had when he was standing, giving a glimpse of the throne room of God. And then remind us what Isaiah saw when God's glory was displayed in sinless perfection. In a sense, you know that is an image of Christ, right? Sinless perfection. All of God's glory in sinless, perfect holiness. And when, when approaching God's throne, Isaiah heard the angels calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of His glory. <laughs> but then next, the prophet Isaiah, whom, whom I can only assume by the content of his, of his book, the writings of it, he is probably significantly less contaminated by sin as we are. It's he who declared, oh, woe is me, for I'm ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I among, live among a people of unclean lips, and for my eyes have seen the king, uh, the Lord God of hosts. Even Isaiah was ruined. And what he needed was grace. God's forgiveness and grace. Because he saw God's holiness. And holiness is one of God's unchanging attributes. It never changes. It's immutable. It means it's unchanging. Nothing about God in the New Testament has changed. It's the same holy and righteous God. And God the Father today remains perfectly holy. That includes God's Son, Jesus Christ, who is perfectly holy. For God is holy. And Hebrews 12 and verse 28 says, Let us show gratitude. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. You know why? Because it says, for our God is a consuming fire. And Hebrews 10 verse 27 warns, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume its adversaries. The holiness of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ will bring upon a judgment of the world in a flaming fire, a consuming fire. And verse 13 suggests through Christ that our hearts 
our hearts will be established. Actually, your translation might say strengthened for that day. Strengthened. Our hearts will be established and strengthened by God for that day without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of His saints. And more precise language resources state that this Greek word that we translate before literally means in the presence of. It's a courtroom scene. We will be standing in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And He will be judge. And this will occur at the coming of Christ, referred to as the parousia in the Greek, when Jesus returns with the souls of all of His saints, all who had previously died, and the same parousia includes the resurrection from the dead, as we're going to discover in chapter 4 and verse 16. That's just a short time away. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 22, it describes this resurrection and the coming of Christ in this way. It says, quote, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And it's here also where Paul offers this hypothetical question. He says, but, uh, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Saul describes the return and second coming of Christ. And in verse 51, Paul gives this reply. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, O death is swallowed up in victory. Well, that'll be the day. And on the day of Christ's coming, it says we will not have all fallen asleep or would not have all passed away at that point, but we will be all raised from the dead and changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. That last trumpet includes the resurrection, which is the rapture of the church when the Lord descends from heaven with a shout. Matthew 24 and verse 31 says this, God will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, meaning from the four directions of the earth, from one end of the sky to the other. And Matthew also writes that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. So that's the last trumpet. When the dead are raised, it's a very public spectacle. 
Revelation 1 and verse 7 describes it in this way. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, meaning those who stuck the spear in him and drove the nails, even they'll be there. He says, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. And I'll just add that Matthew says, as I've stated previously, Matthew 24 and verse 29, this all occurs after the tribulation of those days. And this return of Jesus Christ in verse 13, this parousia is in the presence of the Father. It's going to be a, a cosmic global event. And the coming of the Lord Jesus is the day of the Lord as described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. According to 2 Peter in chapter 3, it will come suddenly like a thief. Out of nowhere. Not going to be any time to prepare for this day. We need to prepare now. Um, here's why I kind of go down this rabbit trail in being confirmed in holiness on that day. It's very, very important. The Lord is coming as an all-consuming fire. 2 Peter 3 shows the same thing. The elements will be melted down with intense heat. An all-consuming fire of God's judgment, folks. Here's the thing. A fire of judgment that we have to pass through. Follow me? We've got to be able to pass through the fire of God's judgment. It's the same fire that will test the quality of each man's work in building God's kingdom. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, gold, silver, and precious stones, those things that are valued, will survive this test of fire and pass through with us. But man's empty life pursuits, like wood, hay, and straw, are going to be consumed. It says he will suffer loss, but the man himself or the woman will be saved, yet as through fire. Well, you all, you all starting to get a picture of this? The fire of judgment comes and we have to be able to pass through. Are you ready if Jesus returns today? Thomas Constable, of a professor at Dallas Seminary, rightly concludes this, quote, and this should be encouragement to all of us. Paul did not pray that they would be sinless. That was impossible. He prayed that they would be blameless. In Christ, that is possible. Paul is going to offer a very similar prayer later in chapter 5. It says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, says Paul, and he will also bring it about to pass. That's going to be wonderful. Do you know how the fire of God's judgment will be quenched? It's not going to be with water. You're not going to throw a bucket on it. 
Fire department will do you no good. It's with blood. It is blood with which this judgment will be quenched. And the Apostle John states in 1 John 1 and verse 8, Oh, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we won't stand before God in our own sinless obedience. We won't pass through the fire in our own righteousness, but through His. As 1 John 1, 7 assures, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Boy, that's good news. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us so completely, so entirely, that we will pass through blameless on that day that Christ returns, through the fire, into the presence of God the Father. Folks, that, that is going to be a day. Wow. On the first Sunday of every month, we share a meal of remembrance. It's a memorial distributed through the bread and the cup. And on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he said this, do this in remembrance of me. There is no way we can make up for all the sins that we have committed and we continue to commit today. If we say that we have no sin, Scripture says that we deceive ourselves. Boy, but if we suggest, well, let's just keep sinning so that grace may increase, we've also deceived ourselves. For the Apostle John continues, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And by this we have known that we have come to, to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word in Him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says that He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as Christ 